All right, good evening, everybody. So we're going to get started tonight. And if uh, any of you that are type A looking at your study sheet, you be like, what in the world? That is not a normal cover page. You are correct. That is absolutely true. So uh, one word about that really quick before we begin is that I mentioned it last week about how there were some things in that chart that I had given out to you that uh, were not accurate. Um, it's a chart that we've typically given out during our church history. And uh, I was doing some digging and some research, and there were some denominations that were in the wrong places. And so this past week, I spent hours to the point where my brain was like exhausted, working through all the details, trying to confirm dates and years and all that stuff. So what you have is, is based on so far the most accurate uh, that I can come up with at this point. So if you notice anything, uh, definitely let me know. But I wanted to make sure to get that into your hands. And there's going to be some aspects that we're going to be talking about uh, this evening. So I wanted to give you that for your reference. And each week as we talk about different Protestant denominations that came out of the Reformation, we're going to be referring back to that. The other thing I wanted to mention before we start as well is uh, for those of you that are considering our Bible Institute, so be thinking about that. Don't let the summer get away from you too much as far as getting your prerequisites in order and making sure that you have your notes and everything, because that meeting is going to be fast approaching in August uh, for the informational meeting for that coming up. And uh, even if something that you're, you're interested, maybe you've been hanging around for a bit and are like, what is this whole Bible Institute? It's a great meeting that we have together just to get information about what it is, what's required, what it's like, and that will give you all of those pieces of information for you. So I wanted to make sure to mention that uh, before we begin. So let's go ahead and pray, and then we are going to talk about the Churches of Christ tonight and get into some of these details and um, see where the Lord takes us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, first and foremost. Um, above all, it is the one thing that we need to hold um, just very dear and very, very precious. It is our final authority. It ought to be. Uh, we live in the midst of humanity that, is, that tends to be very spiritual and religious, but yet it has very little to do with the Bible. And as a result, we can really try to convince ourselves that we are, um, I guess, satisfying our conscience and making ourselves feel better about who we are. But deep down, we really, really know that unless we do things properly and, and in your proper order, there is no way that we can have a relationship with you. And it really comes by reading and believing every single word that you've given us in your book. And it is not complicated. Religion is a topic that many people are just very confused by and they overcomplicate things. But if we just read your book, and we believe what it says, things are very, very clear, and things are very, very simple. So I pray tonight as we get into this topic about this particular denomination that you would help me to be able to weed through some of the nonsense, weed through some of the confusion, simplify things, and to be able to magnify your word. Um, there are many people that are a part of these various denominations that we are going to look at from week to week that Really, we need to be able to minister to them. And if we know how people think, we're going to be able to minister to them better and to be able to share the truth with them. And many people have been blinded by these things just from tradition or the way they were raised or family or whatever the case might be. And they really need to be able to see the truth and maybe for the first time. So I pray, God, that you would equip us tonight, uh, that you would open up our eyes, open up our understanding, and help us to have a different perspective uh, with people that are in this particular system of faith. So Father, we love you. We thank you for all that you've done for us, and we ask for your wisdom tonight, and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week we were talking about the Protestants and the Protestant Reformation, and the simple fact that the Baptist heritage had nothing to do with the Protestant Reformation. Uh, we are not Protestants at all, and the whole idea of Protestants really needs to be looked at from the view of history from back when the Protestant Reformation occurred. And then that was that they were trying to clean up the Roman Catholic Church. They, were, they believed that Christianity was actually in the Roman Catholic Church all along, and it had lost its way, and they needed to do their protesting and reforming in order to clean it up and make it better. But the truth, the truth is, is that there was never biblical Christianity in the Roman Catholic Church. The moment that it came underneath the umbrella of Constantine the Great, it began to be defiled and become something that God never intended. But we have to remember, and I want to make sure that we remember this from time to time as we talk about different denominations, that in any denomination, there are people that are genuinely saved. 
The gospel is more powerful than anything in this world when it comes to the world, the flesh, and the devil that they can do to corrupt and deceive and blind people from the truth. And this is something that's quite interesting. And so I wanted to share this verse with you, just getting this started and getting this in your heart and mind, is in Revelation 18. So Revelation 17 talks about, it talks about uh, Rome, uh, specifically the Roman Catholic Church in its form under the leadership of the Antichrist. And it reveals her in, uh, in truth as the harlot that sits upon the beast. And in chapter 18, it talks about how she is absolutely destroyed. And Jesus Christ comes back in chapter 19 and sets things right. And he takes over the earth by force. But this verse, talking about her destruction, is a very interesting verse. And I've always, every time I've read it, and every time I've heard it from this perspective, it always really piques my interest. Because in talking about the harlot Babylon, it says this in verse 23. And the light of a candle shall shine no more at all in thee. Well, when you study Revelation, especially in chapter 1, you find out that the candle, a candlestick, is representative of a biblical church, of a church. And so it says that there is a candle and it's not going to shine any more in thee, which means there are elements of truth being spoken in the Roman Catholic Church in some way, shape, or form, believe it or not. Even though it is thoroughly corrupt from end to end, still the truth of the gospel is in there and there are people that are genuinely saved. And it says, in the voice of the bridegroom, well, who's the bridegroom? That's Jesus Christ. And of the bride, that's the church, shall be heard no more at all in thee. So keep that in mind. Now, I firmly believe that there can be a person that is in the Roman Catholic Church or any other false denomination that is genuinely saved. And I think that God is always working on his people to know the truth and to be led out of such places. But there's a lot of things. Life is complicated. It is very, very complicated. And there's a lot of different pressures and a lot of different things that are happening. And you don't always know what's going on in the heart of a person. So it's easy for us to be very, you know, judgmental, I guess if you can use that term, and just make snap judgments about people and denominations and churches. And, and while I think we should, because we have a standard, we have the Word of God that is our final authority, and we should be able to say, hey, that's right and that is wrong. Always remember that you can never judge someone's heart. And you never know what's going on. And always keep your eyes and ears open because people that are in these different denominations that are preaching false gospels and false doctrine need to hear from you. And if you are going to poise yourself in a position of an adversary against them, why would they ever want to hear you? So just be mindful. We need to be wise. Be thinking about those things as we go through these different denominations. It can be easy to come against it, but let's just be careful. Turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 2. We're going to hit this passage here in a second, but I want you to go ahead and turn there, and we're going to start working through the first several paragraphs on your study sheet. 2 Timothy chapter 2, and verses 24 through 26 is what we're going to read here in a few minutes. So we're going to talk about the Church of Christ, the Disciples of Christ, Christian churches. Now, there are three branches of this, and we're going to explain that in detail. But the Church of Christ denomination can be traced back to the Presbyterian branch of the Protestant Reformation under the leadership of John Calvin and John Knox. Those are the ones that started the Presbyterian part of that Reformation. Even though they are Protestants historically, they would not consider themselves to be Protestant because they believe that they are the only church, they believe they are the only church that follows the original teachings of Christ and the Apostles, which that totally reeks of Roman Catholicism. They believe they are the only church, the Church of Christ. They believed the original church of the apostles faded away until it was properly restored by Alexander Campbell. This belief sparked the Restoration Movement, or what's termed as the Stone-Campbell Movement, and its purpose was to return the true church to its original roots. They sought to remove the divisions between all churches and denominations, and make all one in Christ, and that's where the term churches of Christ come from. Studying their beliefs will further reveal that their true roots are false teachings that originate from the Roman Catholic Church. Now, today, there are three main branches of this denomination. You have the churches of Christ, Christian churches, also called churches of Christ, and the Christian church, which are the disciples of Christ. So this can get very confusing very, very fast. But those are the three, and that is straight off their website. That is straight off their website, off the Disciples of Christ website. 
These three are connected through an organization known as the World Convention, and they heavily promote Christian ecumenicalism, and that is bringing everyone together. Now, I want you to hear this. I, I pulled these three paragraphs I'm going to read now. They're not on your study sheet, but they are from, the, um, from their particular website explaining these, these sorts of things. So get this in your mind. So they're wanting to eliminate differences and divisions, and they don't like that at all, and they're very, very particular, and yet there's three different branches. So just ex- you can try to explain that, because there shouldn't be any divisions. Why do you have branches? Great question. I don't know. Okay. But here's how they, here's how they term it. The Campbell Stone movements united in 1832 in Lexington, Kentucky, after about a quarter of a century of separate development. The founders of the Christian church hoped to restore Christian unity by returning to New Testament faith and practices. But the church found that even this led to division. One group which opposed practices not specifically authorized by the New Testament, such as instrumental music in the church and organized missionary activity, gradually they pulled away. That group was listed separately in the 1906 Federal Religious Census as the Churches of Christ. Another group began a separation in 1926 over what it felt were two liberal policies on the mission field in the practice of baptism. More than 40 years later, around 1967 to 69, some 3,000 of those congregations formally withdrew at the time of the disciples' restructure. They refer to themselves as the Christian churches or the churches of Christ. And then the Christian church, Disciples of Christ, in North America is a denomination. And the North America has long been racially and culturally diverse, but church life is not always integrated. The Christian church, Disciples of Christ, participates in the racial and cultural diversity of North America, including its membership, European Americans, African Americans, Hispanic Americans, Pacific Island, Asian Americans, Disciples are working to become a pro-reconciling, anti-racist church. So that is what their whole goal is. So as you can start to see here, you've got a lot of moving parts. You have people that are trying to stand up for certain doctrine, and so because of that, they separate. But we're still all Christian churches, but we're the only church. But there's no divisions, but yet there's three of us, and we just kind of, it's a mess. It's a mess. So, while there are some Church of Christ congregations that have come out of false teachings within their denomination to biblical salvation and other biblical teaching, most remain in false doctrine. This reveals the great need for all true believers to know how to study their Bible. This is so important. This is why we make much of Bible study and how to study the Bible and knowing the Word of God for yourself. You've got to be able to take these things and run them out for yourself. You have to. Any person that's going to utter anything, you need to take that and you need to compare it with what the Word of God says. And if you don't know how to study your Bible, you need to figure out how. It's so important. The Church of Christ's false teachings violate almost every rule of basic Bible study. There will always be people who scoff at the rules of Bible study that we believe God clearly laid out in His Word, but it is quite likely they are just fearful that what they believe will be exposed as a lie. Being a Bible believer means that we are always willing to allow the Word of God to expose things that are false in us and all around us, regardless of what we may think or how we may feel, because it could save someone's life. This is so important. What you believe is more, it is way more than just you. We live in such a self-centered culture and in such a self-centered society and a self-centered world. We would all do well to take our entire lives and line it up with the Word of God. And whatever lines up, we keep. And whatever it doesn't, we throw out. We must be able to do that. And so I have you turning to 2 Timothy 2, and we're going to read that verse in a minute, but I want to show you this one first. Paul said this to Timothy, his disciple, Take heed unto thyself and unto the doctrine. Continue in them, for in doing this thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear thee. Sound doctrine matters, and we have to make sure that we are sound in what we're doing and what we're teaching and what we're saying and what we're living, because it can save your life. I mean, yes, we're talking about the gospel, but even more than the gospel, there are elements of Bible truth that will literally save your life, and it can save people's lives around them, because anytime the truth goes out, it's going to have a positive effect on people. It's going to. 
Now, they may not like it, but if they take heed to it, it could save their marriages. It could save their friendships. It could save their family. It could save maybe some of the dumb decisions they're going to be making at work soon. I mean, there's all sorts of things that the Word of God and the truth of God can help save someone's life. And it's so important, so important. Now, take a look at 2 Timothy 2, verse 24 through 26. And we talked about this at the end of the Calvinism series. And the servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle to all men, apt to teach, patient, in meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves. Because that's what they're doing. They oppose themselves. If God, peradventure, will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth, and that they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil who are taken captive by him at his will. It is important for us to know sound doctrine and to be mature ministers so that way we can help teach people and be patient with them to show them the truth so that way they can have the opportunity to acknowledge that truth and recover themselves. That's what ministry is. That's really what it is. You and I can't make these decisions for other people. But what you can do is love them enough, biblically enough, show them the truth, and they can see it for themselves, and then they have to make the decision. You can't make anyone's decision for them. But you can be faithful to present it in such a way that they can see it clearly. I, I had this conversation not too long ago. I believe that God gives every person a moment of clarity in their life before they pass away. I don't, I, it doesn't matter what the circumstances, what their life's been like, what they say they believe, what their experiences are. I believe that God is faithful to every human being to bring every person to a point of clarity in their life where they clearly understand the truth and they have a choice to either receive it or not. And you and I have the privilege of being a part of that process. But we have to know what we believe, and we have to know why. We must know the Word of God. We have to know the Word of God. Okay, so tonight we're going to be talking about the Churches of Christ. You've had this chart, which barely fits on the screen, but it does. It looks so nice. Um, and so we're going to be talking about the Churches of Christ. So as you follow along, if you want to look up on the screen or if you want to look on your paper, either one, uh, we have the green line because green means go, green is good, and then red, bad. And then you have Constantine the Great. I tried to make it simple. <laughs> blue means, eh. I, I like blue. I just I wanted to make it a little bit different. All right. So you have Constantine in 312, 325, where you have the Roman Catholic Church begin. You have the Orthodox Eastern, and you have the Roman Western branches there. And then 1517 is what we talked about last week with the Protestant Reformation with Luther. And out of that came the Lutheran, Presbyterian, and Reformed under Luther, Calvin, and then um, Wick, uh, not Wick, I have Wycliffe on my mind because I've been doing all this on, my, on the chart, um, Zwingli for the Reformed Church. And so then coming out of there, you have the Presbyterian. So the Presbyterian, which came out of uh, Calvin and John Knox, you have CMA in 1887, that's the Christian Missionary Alliance, and you have the Churches of Christ in 1832. And so that is the section we're going to be talking about. They definitely have their traces back to the Roman Catholic Church and the Protestant Reformation. And you'll be able to see that based upon some of the doctrinal positions that they do hold, because it really comes right back to the Roman Catholic Church. So let's talk about the founders, first of all. Founders. We have three to talk about. You have Thomas Campbell. Thomas Campbell was a Scotch-Irish Presbyterian minister that left his church to start a new restored church with his son, Alexander. The church was known as the Disciples of Christ, the Church of Christ. Then you have Alexander Campbell, a Presbyterian minister who left his church. He was accepted by the Redstone Baptist Association as a preacher because of his belief in baptism by immersion. He joined his father Thomas to start a new restored church and eventually left the Baptists because he subscribed to baptism by immersion for the remission of sins. His followers were sometimes referred to as Campbellites. Now, there's some people, because of this fact, that they try to tie the Churches of Christ back to the Baptists, but that is not true. He was accepted because of immersion, but then as his views were changing, he says, no, you have to be baptized in order to be saved. To get rid of those sins, you must be baptized, and that's where the Baptists were like, okay, we need to part ways. And he agreed, and so they were never, they were never together. Just for a small little season, they were. So this is simply not the case because they were, just, they were different in their doctrines. And then you, lastly, you have Barton Warren Stone, and he was a Presbyterian minister that broke off from his church to start his own restored church referred to as Christians. Eventually, he merged his group with the Campbellites, 
because of their common belief in baptism for the remission of sins. And that is what you will see as a common thread throughout the churches of Christ. Now, they're authorities. They have the Bible, and they have the teachings of the founders of these particular men. They are adamant about the Bible being their final authority, but their founders rest the scriptures to support their false doctrines, and they continue to do the same thing today. It's exactly what Peter said would happen. People do it all the time. They rest the scriptures. And it's because of this fact right here. They are unwilling to reevaluate their false doctrines through the basic rules of Bible study. They will tenaciously hold to their views and man-made false doctrines and attack all those who disagree with them, though usually not the other factions of Christian churches that disagree internally. This is what they commonly do. And just as a question, how many of you come from a Churches of Christ background? Okay, there's a few. What about family? People have family that are in it? Okay, there's a few. Now, when it comes to these sorts of things, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Now, they range in spectrum just like anybody else in different Christian denominations, but they really, they, this is what they do. They, they are adamantly like, if you are not part of this church, then you are going to go to hell. Like, they actually really do believe that. A lot of these, these Christian churches, these Church of Christ folks. And there are some exceptions to it, but in general, that is really what they teach and that is what they preach. But this is just another reminder that we just have to be humble enough to evaluate everything we believe. We have to be humble enough to evaluate everything we believe to adhere with the scriptures. We have to study to show ourselves approved. We need to. They're not willing to do that, though. They, they hold on to these traditions, and they hold on to them tightly, rather than holding on to the Word of God. And so those are their two authorities. And mainly, it comes back to the teachings and the founders of these men, and you'll see that more as we work through it. So let's talk about their doctrine, and let's get into the message of salvation. So, the message of salvation, salvation is by grace through faith in Christ, with, with confession of sin, repentance, water baptism by immersion for the remission of sins by a Church of Christ preacher, and regularly partaking in the Lord's Supper, which is offered every week by the only true church, the Church of Christ, Christian Church, or Disciples of Christ. And so this is what they say. They will, they will adamantly, they will fight with, with you on this, and they will say that it is by grace through faith in Christ alone. However, you do have to do these other things. They will argue that they do not believe in faith plus works, but when you evaluate it objectively with the final authority of the Bible, they truly believe in faith plus works for salvation. Here is an example. So First Christian Church over in Canton, and there's a couple different ones. There's a First Christian in Massillon where they have uh, female pastors, and a lot of these um, churches they have female pastors. But First Christian, uh, right on Market, I pulled this off of their, their website. Now they would be more on the liberal side, and we're going to talk about them a little bit later, where they don't hold to firm, firm things like, okay, they have instruments in their churches, whereas in a lot of Church of Christ places, they don't have instruments at all. It's just a cappella singing for everybody with someone that's just leading the music up front. But here's what they say, and you can see it. Now that you start to notice the doctrine of salvation, you can see it. So here's what, what I pulled from their website just this past week. We believe salvation is an absolutely free and unearned gift of God's grace, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, offered exclusively through Jesus, Acts 4, 12. So far, so good. We believe salvation is available to every single person who accepts and follows Jesus as Lord and Savior. Romans 1.16. Phenomenal. We believe God's expectation is for us to express our declaration and decision of faith by repenting, turning away from sin, and being baptized. Acts 2.38. We're going to talk about Acts 2.38. Because Acts 2.38 is one of the headline verses of every single person that believes that you must be baptized in order to be saved. So they don't come out right and say it, and they don't say, oh, you must be baptized to be saved, but they will say, we believe it's God's expectation for us to express our declaration and decision of faith by repenting, turning away from sin, and being baptized. So the way that it's written is very subtle and very deceitful because they are saying you must be baptized in order to be saved. That is what they are saying. And that is in line with these Christian churches, churches of Christ, disciples of Christ. And that is First Christian over in Canton. Let's talk about their observances, and we'll get into the baptism a little bit more once we get into here. Baptism by immersion for the remission of sins, Acts 2.38. When baptized, the convert would receive the gift of the Holy Spirit along with salvation. This observance must be performed by a Church of Christ preacher or it is not valid. It is a one-time baptism. 
if you lose your salvation and are resaved, which they believe you can lose it, so if you lose it and now you're resaved again, you don't have to be rebaptized. The first baptism for the remission of sins is still valid. Now, this sounds so much like the Roman Catholic Church that you can hardly tell them apart. Because the Roman Catholic Church would teach, well, as long as you were baptized as a baby, you're fine. You can lose your salvation, but just come back into favor by doing all these other things, and now you're in good standing with God again. It's the same sort of thing. In the Encyclopedia of the Stone Campbell Movement, there were two sections that I found that I wanted to read to you. This shows you very clearly where they stand on baptism. And these, some of these are the exact words of Campbell himself. And this is what it says. I do earnestly contend that God, through the blood of Christ, forgives our sins through immersion, through the very act and in the very instant. A person is not clean before he or she is washed. The clearly visible marker between state of nature and the state of grace is the act of baptism. No one has any proof of the forgiveness of sins until baptism. No one has ever received pardon of sin by faith only. Water baptism with faith as the principle of action is the means through which God, by the power of the blood of Christ, imparts remission. That's really clear. You have to be baptized in order to be saved. It says this too. They also held without wavering that it was in the act of baptism that forgiveness of sins took place. Baptism was completing your obedience and salvation was not received until obedience was complete. So they can fight it. They can say it's faith alone, but it's not. It's not. And they always go back to Acts 2.38. So we'll talk about that when we get there. We're going to talk about that last. Number two, the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is observed weekly for the remembrance of Christ's death. This act will assist in the believer's destination to heaven after death if it is performed regularly. So even though they do not use the term sacraments, this is how the observances function in practice, which is clearly Protestant and Roman Catholic doctrine. Because they believe you can lose your salvation, no one in the Church of Christ has any assurance of their salvation, even when they faithfully participate in their sacraments. Refuting the Church of Christ's false doctrine on baptism and receiving the Holy Spirit is simple for the Bible believer. All you need to do is look up every time that a person is baptized, and you will see the pattern of baptism and receiving the Holy Spirit is different every time. The biblical doctrine of receiving and dwelling of the Holy Spirit comes from the church epistles. And I've got a couple verses that I just want to show you on this one because they are absolutely clear, absolutely clear. I've, I've quoted these ones before. I love these verses because they're just very clear and very simple talking about Jesus Christ in verse 13 of Ephesians 1, in whom ye also trusted after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. You hear the word of truth first. You hear the gospel. And then, in whom also after that ye believed, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. The scripture cannot be more clear about the process of salvation. When you hear the gospel, and you understand it, and then you choose to believe it, God then seals you with his Holy Spirit. There is nothing with water baptism that's necessary for salvation. Nothing at all. And God makes this so clear that in the next verse, verse 14, he says, which is the Holy Spirit, the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of his glory. The fact that God at the moment of salvation would give you his spirit, it is the down payment for your final redemption. That is... I mean, when you stop to think about the fact that God himself would give you his spirit. Like, we, okay, this is one of those aspects of Christianity where we, yeah, yeah I received the Holy Spirit. No, 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 no hold, just hold, hold on a second. Like, that is amazing. Like, when you stop to really consider what God has done at the moment of salvation, that you actually received his spirit. This is why people's lives are changed. This is because they can't, I mean, I can't change my life. Like you can, you can discipline yourself, but there are still things at your core you cannot change. We still struggle as long as we're in this flesh. I hate my flesh. And the Spirit of God is the one that has been changing me. He's the one that helps me. When I get into the Word of God, He's the one that teaches me. I love the fact that every morning I can open up God's book 
and he has something to teach me that day. That is incredible that the author of the book, the Holy Spirit of God, is inside, and when I read the book, he helps me to understand. That's why many people, when they read the Bible, they don't understand it. It's because they're not saved, because they don't have the Spirit of God in them. There are verses that they can't understand, but I bet you those are the verses about the gospel, because the Spirit of God's working on them about those particular verses. So this is so important for us to understand. Baptism is not required for salvation. Baptism is not required to receive the Holy Ghost. The Word of God is absolutely clear about this. And in Colossians 1.27, God talks about this, and this is, again, another one of those things that just blows my mind. In whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. The Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Ghost, all one and the same person that he actually dwells in me. Whew. And you think about the ramifications of that. Your life ought to be different. Like when you really begin to consider the fact that God lives inside in the things that I see and the things that I do, that he's right there along with me, that should change everything. I would often kid with the uh, senior hires, but not kid, I was being very serious about it. I'm like, just imagine, just imagine one day that everywhere you go, you have Jesus right there over your shoulder, just every step of the way. And I would awkwardly have a volunteer come up and just follow me around the room. And it was just fun to do. Like, can you imagine, how would your life be different? Would you say things differently? Would you make different decisions? Would you, would you do this? Would you do that? Would you not do this? Would you not do that? Would you, like, oh yeah, well, absolutely. Well, hey, <laughs> it's, it's the truth. It's the absolute truth. If you are born again, he is inside of you. So he's not just following you over your shoulder. He's actually in you. And he is participating in everything that you're doing. That should change some things in your life. And if you're lost and he's not in you, he still sees everything that you're doing. Nothing is hidden from his sight. And yet he still loves and cares for you. And there's still hope through Jesus Christ. I love that about our God. I really do. So those are the two observances, the two ordinances. Let's talk about their purpose, the purpose. The purpose is to evangelize the lost people of the community where they are located to make as many converts as possible. But their converts must be baptized by immersion for the remission of sins, or they are not a convert. And they really do believe that. And they often have a great heart for their community. They really do. Their structure is called an independent cooperative. The founders believed that it was important for a real church to revert to the simplicity of the original New Testament churches, free from the additions of history and man-made tradition, and that was the Restoration Movement. To accomplish this properly, churches must be independent from one another, but still bound by the same doctrinal beliefs. This established a cooperative of churches broken down by region, but still separate and distinct. As a result, they do not understand the biblical view of church and churches. Now, when you work this out practically from a biblical perspective, the church, the body of Christ, is biblically seen only on a local level. Anytime you go through the Bible and you start to see church or churches, it's always on a local level. Now, there is going to come a day in the future when we get raptured out of here and we get to participate in the marriage supper of the Lamb, that we will be a unified group of believers known as the body of Christ. And that is going to be an amazing, amazing day. And I know that we can't wait for that day. And even God said, it's blessed to see that it is part of all of that. It's going to be incredible. But as long as we're here on this earth, that doesn't exist. I mean, we experience it a little bit here and there. Like when we travel and we go to different places, like the group that just went to Florida, you go down there and you're immediately connected with these believers and it's like you have everything in common. I've gone to places in Mexico where I go down, I can't speak. I speak enough to be dangerous, but not enough to actually survive. And they go down to Mexico, and you don't even know how to really communicate, but you're instantly connected because it's not bound by language. It's bound by the blood of Christ. So we get to experience it in some of those ways. But a local church, the body of Christ, can only be seen at a local level, a local level, which is why Paul addresses each church as the body of Christ in the New Testament epistles. So they don't understand that. They don't really, really get that. The Bible is what unifies us, but how we function is local, independent, autonomous from any other local church. And here's another good point just to think about. Anytime you get multiple flocks together with any growth, there's potential problems. <laughs> That's the truth. 
And so you have to learn how to properly, properly separate. This is what Abraham and Lot were going through in Genesis 13. And he's like, okay, we've got to separate ourselves from each other because we've got some major problems that are unfolding. And that's why we need to start new churches. It's not good for us to just grow numerically like a monstrosity. We have to start new independent autonomous churches so we can reach more people. Let's talk about the officers and the offices. So first of all, you have preachers, preachers, sometimes called ministers. And we'll talk about how that differs from pastor here in a second. And then you have elders and you have deacons. So the preacher, usually not called the pastor, is the one who does the preaching, teaching, baptizing. The elders, also called bishops, overseers, presbyters, and shepherds within this denomination, they are the ones that rule the church and take care of the administrative functions, church discipline, etc. The deacons serve in any capacity they are called to fulfill, and this is a testimony of how they do not believe the Bible and compare Scripture with Scripture to define biblical terms. We've already established this in this study already. The Bible clearly teaches that the elder, bishop, overseer is synonymous with pastor. Now you will find, like even uh, the first Christian in Canton, uh, they do call themselves pastors. And so in those cases, that is the exception, but they're more of a liberal uh, wing of this denomination. And so they call themselves pastors. And in some churches of Christ, they would say that there could be a pastor that can preach and teach and baptize and do all those things and administrate, but it is rare. Most of the times they're kept separate. Number six, we got the finances, free will offerings. Now the atmosphere, which we're going to get to in a second, of most Christian churches is that of fear. So instead of being able to cheerfully give, as the Bible talks about in 2 Corinthians 9, many are afraid of not giving enough or appropriately. And this is a great segue into the atmosphere. The atmosphere. The atmosphere is very religious, but it is also very anxious, and it is dead because there's really no joy. And the reason why that is is because members often live out their faith with fear with little to no joy. There's no assurance of their salvation. There's no amazing grace. And yet they would sing that song, but there is no amazing grace. And it's because of the things that they believe. It would just be like the Catholic Church. I remember going into the Catholic Church and it just felt, just felt off. It just felt like it was dead. It really was. I just remember the testimony of my friends growing up that they could go and live however they wanted as long as they got into confession and mass, and then they were completely fine again, and they could just be at peace, and their life was lived outside of the church. There was no joy in the church. You're like, oh, it's a religious obligation. I got to do this because I got to be right with God, but once I get out of the church, now I can live my life, and that's kind of how it is when you have a religion that is driven by guilt. That's why it's so important for us to remember that. If you ever get in a position in your Christian walk where you are living your Christian walk in guilt, something's going to implode. You've got to be careful. That is a warning sign. There's something that you're not dealing right between you and the Lord. You should be able to come to church every Sunday, every Wednesday, every discipleship meeting, and you should be looking forward to it. If there are things that you don't look forward to, there's something wrong. There's something that's off. That's always been a great indicator in my heart about just me personally, that if I'm ever dreading coming in, there's something off in my heart and mind that I've got to deal with. I don't know what it might be, and maybe I have to spend some time in prayer to the Lord, but I need to figure this out. Because you should be able to come here. This should be one of the, out of all the places in the world, this should be the place you should be able to come to and have joy and have peace and to be home. And in a lot of churches, it's just not that way. But it needs to be. It needs to be. This is not some sort of a religious game that we play. This is real life, and you should be able to come to your local church and to be able to feel at home. You should be able to feel comfortable. And so that is the atmosphere. The Church of Christ and Disciples of Christ are often non-instrumental. That would be very difficult for me. Although I do love a cappella singing. I do enjoy that. The Christian churches are usually progressive and very culturally relevant. And there's testimonies from people that talk about that. I remember one person telling me in particular that um, uh, they went to a wedding that happened at a Church of Christ, and they had no instruments. And they said it was just the strangest thing because they were singing as part of the wedding ceremony, but yet there was no instruments. And so it was just kind of like everyone was just singing forward. And I looked up a couple of YouTube videos, and that's exactly how it was working. I mean, everyone was sitting in their seats. They had a music leader, and, 
And it was like they weren't sure what the next song was going to be, but as soon as he began to sing it, then they came along and started to sing with it. But there was no instrumentation. No instrumentation. And then number eight, we'll talk about a doctrine. They are non-political because they do believe in the separation of church and state, but they are also intolerant and unbiblical. So we, we have to remember that the Church of Christ believes that it alone is the true church. Everyone not associated with them is destined to hell and eternal damnation. There are many people that believe that in, in Christian churches. Their members do not know the Bible or understand the doctrinal teachings of their church, but they will be able to quote their headline verses on baptism by immersion for their mission of sins in Acts 2.38 and even Acts 22.16. They are passionate about getting people baptized, for without it there is no hope of salvation. At the same time, no member can have assurance or real hope in their salvation, even if they do everything required. Many do not concern themselves with the triune nature of God, do not accept that the sin of Adam has passed spiritually to all men, and their false doctrines are among the most contradicted to the scriptures and to themselves when compared to the other faiths in this study. But in contrast, Christian churches, example again for First Christian in Canton, are much more liberal than others. They do not openly teach their doctrines to their congregations, so most do not know what their church believes. Therefore, there is a more relaxed environment than the Church of Christ and Disciples of Christ churches. The relaxed environment perpetuates more of a social event style of ministry to gain more members. And in some ways, and this is the kind of the, the good part about this, in some ways this group is more apt to be reached with the true, simple, biblical gospel of Jesus Christ just because of that environment that they've grown up in. But this would be very similar with Rivertree. Rivertree is a Christian church as well, and they would fall in line with First Christian where they would believe you must be baptized in order to be saved, uh, but they would not openly teach that. But there's a lot of folks that can be reached because they don't openly teach those doctrines. So now let's talk about what does the Bible say. And this is where I wanted to spend a good chunk of time. So we've got enough time to hopefully at least cover uh, one of these verses in particular with Acts 2.38. But salvation is by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. And the written word of God is our final authority. I want to keep reiterating these things. I honestly felt, I'm like, yeah, it's just the same thing from last week. But I'm like, no, hold on a second. <laughs> 2 Peter chapter 1, though you know these things, I'm going to put you in remembrance of them. This is so important for us to understand. Salvation is by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. We cannot be trusting in anything else. It has nothing to do with your works, nothing to do with, with family, tradition, nothing. It has to do with Jesus Christ and him alone. The most important decision a person will ever make is what they do about Jesus Christ. And it is not tied to your baptism, it is not tied to sacraments, it's not tied to communion, it's not tied to anything else but your own personal decision about Jesus Christ. That is so important. That is where our hope alone lies. We cannot let go of that. We cannot forget that. And we can't let it grow stale either. And the written word of God is our final authority. We do have such a tendency to be trusting in other things, but the Bible alone is our authority. It must be. It has to be. We can't be relying upon traditions. We can't. When it comes to the Word of God, it should guide everything that we do, every single thing that we do. And where the Bible is silent, we have liberty to do certain things. But where the Bible is very specific, then we must do what it absolutely says. And anything that gets in the way of the Bible should go. It should go. And then thirdly, this is where I want to spend a little bit more time, baptism for the remission of sins has nothing to do with being born again and becoming a Christian. So turn with me to Acts 2.38. I want to go through this passage because this is the one that they go to. This is the one that Charismatics will go to, Pentecostals will go to, and they will say, see, you must be baptized in order to be saved. Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. If we have time to get the other ones, we will, but I wanted to at least take plenty of time to work through this one because this is the one that they will use the most. So the Church of Christ says that this verse teaches baptism for the remission of sins and that it is necessary for all people living in this church age. Acts 2, verse 38. Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Taking that verse alone with just verse 38, would you not believe that repentance and baptism is required for salvation. You absolutely would. And this is why one of the big rules of Bible study is that you never take a single verse and build a doctrine upon a single verse. 
context is everything. So what is happening now in Acts chapter 2? So when you think about Acts chapter 2 and you think about what's happening, Jesus Christ had just died. He had rose again from the dead. He had appeared unto his disciples. And for 40 days, he's teaching them and he's showing them and he's working with them. And then back in chapter 1, just flip over one page to chapter 1 or 2, depending on if you have a super small or large print book. <laughs> but in chapter 1, these guys were ready. They were ready for the kingdom of heaven to be established. Because think about it. Everything that they've read and believed in the Old Testament was about the literal physical kingdom of God being set up. Kingdom of heaven, sorry. The literal physical kingdom of heaven being set up. And remember, the Bible talks about the kingdom of God as that invisible, internal kingdom where God rules and reigns inside the heart of each individual believer. So they have been looking forward to this all along. When Jesus showed up, and you had, you know, Philip and Nathaniel, and you had John, and you had Peter. They're like, we found him, we found him. This is the one that we've been waiting for. I mean, they were thrilled. When the disciples in John chapter 6, verse 66, and it says, many of his disciples walked away and didn't follow Jesus any longer. Jesus approaches his disciples and says, are you going to go away too? And remember their response. Where are we going to go? There's, there's, there's nowhere else that we're going to find truth. They were hanging on him for everything, and rightfully so. He was the one. He was the Messiah. So now, he's dead. And I mean, they're crushed. They're scattered, all of them. John is the first one to return, and he's at the cross when Jesus dies. And now they don't have any hope. And they don't even remember the things that he told them. Three days, I'm going to rise again. They didn't get it. They didn't understand it yet. But then he rises again from the dead, and he appears unto Mary, and he shows Mary and tells her, go and tell my disciples. And even then, they're like, ah. Peter and John run to the tomb, and they're checking in. They're like, what's going on? We have no idea what happened to him. And they're not listening. They're not paying attention. This is so like us. God's trying to get your attention, and it's like, <laughs> it's like, it's right in front of you. I'm trying to show you, but we're just not paying attention. That's what the disciples so finally, Jesus shows up. They're assembled in the room. He shows up in the midst of them, and he reveals who he is, that he's alive. And you've got so many other examples from the Gospels. So now they are pumped. They're excited. But they don't know what's happening, but they're excited. They just know that he's not dead anymore, and he's risen from the dead. And so now, in verse 4, it says, And being assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which saith he, ye have heard of me. For John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. When they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? I mean, this is a great question. So, I mean, I, I can just picture them. They're like, listen, I'm going to give you some instructions. Go to Jerusalem, wait for the promise of the Father. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, so are you going to restore the kingdom now? Like, it's, <laughs> it goes completely over their heads. Is, now, are you going to restore the kingdom now? Like, now? Like, is this, this is it. This is it. This is it. And they're excited about it. And then he gives this answer, which is a little bit of a letdown to them. And he said unto them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power. But ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and in the uttermost part of the earth. And when he had spoken these things, while they beheld, he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. I mean, <laughs> he doesn't really... Okay, are you going to set it up now? Okay, it's not for you to know. But here's what you do need to know. And, <laughs> and, then, and then, of course, the next verse is so perfect. When he had, and then it says, And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven, as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, which also said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as you have seen him go into heaven. <laughs> so they are like, what? So is he going to set up the kingdom? <laughs> like, I, just, I just picture this with these guys. And so the two angels have to show up and you're like, why are you, why are you staring? Like, why? Just, just go and do what he told you to do. And so that's what they do. They go back to Jerusalem. So they're still trying to figure all this stuff out. And so they do what they know to do. They go back to Jerusalem, and they're kind of hanging out in the upper room. And then chapter 2, the Holy Spirit comes, and all of a sudden they are preaching, and they're doing exactly what Jesus told them to do in verse 8. 
And they go out, and this whole speaking in tongues is not some sort of a erratic, crazy babbling. They are speaking legitimate languages. And the whole context here is to the nation of Israel. The whole nation of Israel is now gathered for this Feast of Pentecost, and they are going out and they are preaching the Word of God. And as they're preaching the Word of God to their brethren, the Jews, the nation of Israel, they are sharing about the truth of Jesus Christ. And they would have talked about how the fact that He's the Messiah. This is the one that we've been waiting for. And he goes through this, and Peter stands up and he preaches the exact same thing. The exact same thing. Take a look at verse 22. He goes through and he starts preaching through, and he says in verse 22, Ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain, whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. So Peter's going at it. This Jesus was the one that we were waiting for. And you killed him. You killed him, but God raised him from the dead. But you are the one that killed him. Remember that. Go over to verse 32. This Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we all are witnesses. This is exactly what Jesus told them to do. You are to be witnesses of me. They are being faithful to what he told them to do. Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted, and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he hath shed forth this, which ye now see and hear. For David is not ascended into the heavens, but he saith to himself, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand until I make thy foes thy footstool. Therefore, and he's concluding his message right here, let all the house of Israel, that is so important, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. So now that's the conclusion, and look at the result in verse 37. Now when they heard this, when they heard verse 36 and everything proceeding up to it, when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? This is such an appropriate question. You have to think about it from their perspective. The one that we had been waiting for, this one, this prophet that was like unto Moses, this one is the one that you crucified, you killed our only hope as a nation. It's over. This was it. You murdered him, he's dead. God raised him, and God hath made him both Lord and Christ. Whew. You start to think of the ramifications of their decisions. That's why they were pricked in their heart, because now they understood, and they're like, oh my word, what did we just do? The hope of Israel was that man, and we just said, Cru we just said crucify him. Crucify him. Let his blood be upon us and our children. That's what they openly said publicly. Whoa, what do we do? I mean, that is a question full of brokenness and a desire for wisdom and understanding. What are we going to do? And then Peter says, verse 38. Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Repent of what? Okay, you killed him. Okay, then I need to have a change of heart and a change of mind. I actually was responsible for killing my Messiah. And be baptized in the name of the one that you killed. And you'll receive remission of sins. Well, what sins? of rejecting the Messiah and killing him. That's the sins that they committed here. And if you're willing to do that and be baptized in his name, then you will receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. That's what the verse means. And this is what it means to be a Bible believer. And it is so easy to be a Bible believer. 
But you have to look at it, and you have to read it, and you have to believe it. Most people do not want to put the work and the effort at reading God's words for themselves and understanding it properly. Instead, they just take it from tradition after tradition after tradition after tradition. Well, the preacher said, Acts 2.38, that I have to repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. With no thought that this chapter had nothing to do with them. Nothing. This had everything to do with the nation of Israel and with the Jews for killing their Messiah. So Acts 2.38 is one of the lamest verses that you can use for salvation. It has nothing to do with the church age. Nothing. And if you are basing your faith in Jesus Christ on Acts 2.38, there's a good chance that you are not saved. Because you are believing in a false gospel. This verse has nothing to do with that. It has everything to do with the nation of Israel getting right with God for killing their only hope as a nation. And that's what Peter is preaching unto them. And this is what they do all the time. All the time. They just pick out single verses like this all over the place, and they don't do the work necessary to know what they're actually talking about. Everyone that's in a false doctrine, this is what they do. They regurgitate these things over and over and over and over and over again. It's like when we went through the Charismatic and Pentecostal, which we're going to review that in a few weeks. The only chapters in the Bible they know, and the only small portions of the Bible they know, are 1 Corinthians 14, because it talks about tongues there, and a few places in the book of Acts. And that's really it. I mean, that is really it. Outside of that, they don't really know anything else. When you study the churches of Christ and these Campbellites, their tendency is that they only stuck with certain passages of the Bible. They only stuck with certain portions and certain books. They never went back to concern themselves with what Jesus preached and taught about. They had no need to. It's because they believed in false doctrine. We have to take the Word of God within the context of the Word of God. We must. We have to. If we're going to be faithful representatives of God and ambassadors for God, then we have to do the work. And if you don't know how to study your Bible, then you need to be discipled. You've got to get discipled. Get into the How to Study the Bible class. Maybe you're like, was it one week under, I think, already? It's not too late. Jump in and start practicing these things. And, you, and it can't be something, like, and, and this is, this is an interesting thought, too. If you're in the How to Study the Bible class, here can be the tendency. You hear a neat little rule, and you see some examples about it, but then when it comes to Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, you don't do anything with it. So get into the habit of when you learn these principles, take them home and start using them. Start paying attention as you're reading things, and God will show you some amazing stuff. So don't just take the class just to take the class. Take the class in order to be someone who can rightly divide the scriptures and put it into practice. Have enough self-discipline to take the things that are being taught and go into the scriptures and start using it for yourself. You've got to. Or how in, how in the world are you going to trust anything that you believe? How are you going to be able to minister to people if you can't handle the Bible for yourself? You've got to be able to do that. That is so important. This is why we, we want people to be discipled. And we want people to be trained because this world is dying. And there are people that you can reach that no one else can reach. There are people that you have the ability to influence and touch that no one else can. And God has you alive on this earth at this moment to do something about it. And you can't sit around and just wait for someone else to take care of it. There's not enough time. Every soul is precious to the Lord. And every person deserves to be reached. We can get so self-centered when it comes to our Christianity, and we ought not to. And so let's, let that be a reminder, just in general, that we're not doing this study because we want to prove that we're right and everybody else is wrong. This should cause us to be stirred in our heart for people and to reach them. Because we don't know what tomorrow is going to hold. And so we need to be wise. Those remaining verses that we didn't have time to cover, I challenge you to go into them and study them in their context. Read what's going on, and you'll be able to see that it has nothing to do with baptism for salvation, but I at least want to make sure to have plenty of time to cover Acts 2.38. Okay, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the things that you have taught us.
uh, even tonight, I pray that we would not let go of these things, um, but that we would hide them deep in our heart and allow them to affect who we are and what we do. Um, God, you paid a high price for us, and you've given us a high calling to be able to follow you in obedience. And what a privilege that we have to be able to be your children and to represent you in this world. And so help us, because we are weak, and we are frail, and, um, and you say very clearly that without me you can do nothing, and that is so true. And so I pray that we would hang on to every word in your book, and that you would change us into the people that you need us to be for this time in history, and that you would find us faithful. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.